Today is Monday, September 12, 2022. This is Quick Start from CBN News. I'm Dan Andros. Christians are in serious peril in a region many people are not aware of. We'll have that top story and more on today's podcast where we bring you news from a Christian perspective. If you agree with that mission, subscribe to this podcast. Give us a rating. Share it with a friend. You can help us with that mission and let us get through the news of the cray together. It's a it's a wild, wild world out there and may as well sift through the news with other Christians who share your perspective on how God is sovereign over the entire world in the midst of all of it. Trey Gons Phillips, Billy Hallowell from CBN's FaithWire join me now to help get through it. Guys, what's going on? Happy Monday. Happy Monday. We are here for Let's another go. week. Let's do it. Right. <laughs> Kicking off another round. Yeah. Let's go. Let's get through the news. And uh, Trey, you got a story coming up on a prestigious university. They're making a move. Honestly, I've been wondering why this hasn't happened a long time ago, or at least something along these lines. So uh, looking forward to the details on that one. Also on the main thing today, Nagorno-Karuba. This is a small region formerly part of the Soviet Union, made up mostly of Christians. It's the historical homeland to the very first people to convert to Christianity. Very interesting background here, but they are suffering serious peril. Why you should care about it and what's going on and all that history coming up on the main thing today. But first, we go through the news in 90 seconds. Yesterday was the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and Americans across the country, they offered ceremonies of remembrance and social media of course was flooded with stirring images cbn compiled a moving recap of the events of the day you can see that over on C- the cbn news youtube channel some politicians were criticized for issuing 9-11 remembrances that used the total number of people killed on 9-11 as 2996 but that number includes the 19 terrorists democratic rep Ramila Jayapal deleted her tweet on it. It was the second year in a row she's used the incorrect number. And Congressman Kevin McCarthy also made the same error on Twitter as well. And it's incredible to think about it. But 21 years, the never forget mantra becomes so much more important because anyone entering college wasn't even alive at that time. It's wild to think about that. Migrant buses have sparked a flurry of what some are describing as hypocritical reactions from so-called sanctuary cities. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser declared a public emergency over these buses that are coming in from Texas and Arizona, which they've been coming in since April. She said, in many ways, the governors of Texas and Arizona have turned us into a border town. And those comments were met with some ridicule as the busing is just a fraction of what some migrant border towns are facing. Those are just some of the headlines you can read about over at CBN news.com and guys 9-11 just thinking about that number that so many people just weren't even alive to experience that day or were just so young they were infants that you're thinking college kids probably a lot of graduates don't have any recollection of this whatsoever well it's like pearl harbor right these events that you hear about when you're growing up and obviously they mean so much the, the remembrance to so many people but you can't fully relate or you can't feel that emotion of what it was like to kind of go through it. I think that this is sort of the new generation of that. But I think with with what happened on 9-11, it was such a defining moment. It really changed America. I, I don't really believe we ever recovered after that as a country. Mm. Yeah, no, I th- it, it is odd having conversations with people and you just kind of assume uh, that everybody knows what 9-11 yeah. was or, or, you know, we know what it is, but remembers 9-11. Uh, and so many people now don't. And I think the defining moment of this generation now, of course, is going to be 
COVID and, and everything that we just went through as a country over the last two years and huge mistakes that I think we can all realize we probably made and, 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 and all that. So uh, each generation seems to have a defining moment. And, and 9-11 was obviously a huge one. And I think COVID will be another one. Yeah. And the difference between those two, the national feeling we had after 9-11, there was so much unity. People yeah. actually rallied together as a nation, as one nation. We really, truly were one at that moment in time. And this was coming off one of the most bitterly divided elections in American history. We were really divided. And then we came together. But in COVID, that didn't happen. We, we didn't come together in COVID. I mean, that seems to have divided us more. So and that could be the most important thing we're missing right now is do we have the ability to come together as a nation anymore? Or is everything going to be hyper politicized? So a lot to think about there. Uh, let's get into our first story here, Trey. And uh, this, as I mentioned at the top, this prestigious university, we've got Princeton. They're making a move that I, at least I've been wondering why this hasn't happened a long time ago. So what did the president of Princeton say? And how did he explain this new plan they've come up with? So, yeah, beginning in the fall of next year, uh, Princeton is going to be free for a certain block of students. Uh, the announcement was called by the administration groundbreaking. So Christopher uh, Eisgruber, the president, said, quote, one of Princeton's defining values is our commitment to ensure that talented students from all backgrounds can not only afford a Princeton education, but can flourish on our campus and in the world beyond it. He went on to say, these improvements to our aid packages, which are made possible by the sustained generosity of our alumni and friends, will enhance the experiences of students during the time at Princeton, during their time at Princeton, and their choices and impact after they graduate. So obviously, a huge it's it's huge news uh, whenever a school does this, but particularly whenever an Ivy League school uh, decides to make tuition free for for any number of, of students. Yeah, it, I mean, what do, what is the cost to go to Princeton? I mean, it just seems like the the prices of universities are going up so much these days. But obviously, Ivy Leagues are going to be some of the most expensive. So, what does it cost to go there? And who? what is this block that you mentioned that the free tuition will actually apply to? Yeah, so Princeton is actually one of the most affordable Ivy League schools, it? believe it or no. not. No, I didn't know uh, that. It's, <laughs> it's still quite expensive. Uh, so according to the university's website, the cost of attendance rings in right around $80,000. Oh, oh, that's uh, it? I, that's why, it? Don't, why don't I just send all my kids there? I have four. That's so cheap. I'm going to send so them there affordable. tomorrow. It's like the Dollar Tree of colleges. <laughs> so 87000 of that roughly goes to tuition, and the rest goes to, to room and board and, and miscellaneous costs for books and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, the free tuition plan, though, will affl- apply to families who make less than $100,000 per year. And I have to keep in mind where Princeton is located. Uh, the fact that a lot of families who are sending their kids to Princeton will, of course, not be in that financial yeah. bracket. Uh, but then uh, you know, the cost is also going to be decreasing significantly for families who make up to $150,000 a year. Uh, they'll only pay $12,500 uh, beginning next fall. So uh, it's quite a huge cut. But again, you have to keep in mind, okay, how many students are going to be in that socioeconomic block? And it's probably not going to be a huge chunk of the student population. Yeah. And they already had sort of a different financial system for how students navigate it. How does that all work? So in 2001, Princeton became the first university to stop relying solely on student loans for its financial aid packages. 
uh, at the time they replaced those with grants uh, so that students wouldn't have to graduate with tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Uh, you know, it helps, obviously, that unlike a lot of other schools, Ivy Leagues like Princeton have absolutely astronomical endowments yeah. uh, because they're so well known and they have obviously successful and famous graduates who are constantly pouring money into it. Uh, and then, of course, the families who are making more than a hundred or one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year will continue to pay traditional student fees. So they're not lacking for money. Yeah. What and so what spurred this on? I mean, we, there's obviously been a lot of debate recently. Was that part of the equation, just the recent political sort of back and forth about the cost of colleges and universities getting out of control, or, or has this been something sort of brewing and in the works? Uh, Princeton, obviously, since 2001, they've been kind of at the front of, of reimagining how they do financial aid. Of course, it doesn't mean it's not expensive, as we've obviously discussed, but they've they've kind of been on the cutting edge of, of this. But uh, certainly, it seems that the new financial program was uh, spurred on by President Biden's decision to forgive billions of dollars in student loans. His plan cancels $10,000 for borrowers making less than $125,000 a year, and then $20,000 for those with Pell Grants. That plan, of course, as we've talked about and CBN News has reported on, has been met with quite a bit of scrutiny from those who either don't have student debt at all because they never attended college and weren't privy to this kind of handout, and then probably a larger percentage is those who worked really, really hard uh, to pay off their student debt uh, and now are not able to reap the benefits of just a, essentially a $10,000 freebie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting uh, because colleges, I think, are going to start facing the wrath of the free market at some point, right? I, the, the, the prices are going up way faster than inflation, and it's been doing so for some time now, and they're just going to price themselves out of, you know, because it's been so long considered, okay, this is just what we do. We're going to, it's the good thing to do to send our kid to college. college. It's going to get them, guarantee them a job that makes them great salaries and it's going to put them ahead in life. I don't know that that's any more the case. And I think people are starting to untether themselves to that idea that has, you know, basically just been mainstream in America for so many decades that going to college is sort of just the best thing you can do. I don't know that that's, that's true anymore. Yeah, well, and like Mike Rowe has been one of the biggest voices on this, right? Encouraging people to go to trade schools and to go other places. I have friends who graduated high school. They're making more money than anybody else I could ever dream of. They never went to college yeah. and they've started businesses, right? So absolutely, I think we've got we've to change the way we think about it. Who wants to leave college, you know, with $500,000 in debt, debt for a, yeah. Yeah, a degree you can never use, really? Well, and I, you know, I think one of the other major criticisms with this plan from President Biden is uh, who does it not target? It doesn't target the colleges who are continuing to yes. increase their prices over and over. And in fact, it really just benefits them, right? It reinforces continue to charge tens of thousands of dollars. We'll bail them price out. your students because the government's just going to pay for it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, indeed it is. And it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic to watch play out. We'll continue to report on Related stories over on CBNnews.com and FaithWire.com. Trey, thanks for bringing us that one today. And that leads us into our main thing in Nagorno-Karuba. This is a small region, as I said at the top, formerly part of the Soviet Union. A lot of Christians there, made up mostly of Christians. It's a historical homeland. The very first people to convert to Christianity as a nation back in about 300 AD, they 
they are all residing there and it, it's just uh armenian heavily population there and they're under attack there is some severe persecution happening there well billy gives an important background and breakdown of the details on today's main thing so many Americans are likely unfamiliar with Nagorno-Karuba, a small landlocked region between Armenia and Azerbaijan. These are two countries that were once part of the Soviet Union. Yet today, tensions in the area, which is mainly inhabited by Armenian Christians, have reached a fever pitch. Many Armenians are warning the conflict could endanger their Christian history. We sat down with Joel Veldkamp, head of international communications with Christian Solidarity International, to better understand the issue and what's at stake. Here's what he had to say. So this is a mountainous region uh, kind of in between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which are two countries that used to be in the Soviet Union. So it's kind of on this land bridge between Iran, Turkey, and Russia. So a very complicated part of the world. Talk a little bit about what dangers and what issues are unfolding for the people living there. Mm -hmm. So this is a region, it's part of the historical homeland of the Armenian Christian people. Uh, The Armenians were the first people to convert to Christianity as a nation in the year 301 AD. Um, And they've had lots of troubles ever since then. Uh, But when this land was part of the Soviet Union, uh, the Russians put it inside the borders of this other country called Azerbaijan, um, pretty much designing problems to come down the line. Um, and they were always discriminated against and marginalized within the borders of, of Azerbaijan. And when the Soviet Union broke up, they said, well, you know what? The Soviet Union's breaking up. They're the ones who put us in here. We don't want to be in Azerbaijan anymore. Um, so they, they voted, the, the representatives voted, and they decided we want to be part of Armenia, the, the nearby country that has the same people, same language, same religion as them. And that started off a 25-year conflict now, 30-year conflict now, actually, um, where Azerbaijan has been trying to wipe these people out, essentially. That's been the response to the desire of Armenian Christians to be independent, to be free. They've said, well, then we just don't want you. We want the land, but we don't want you. Um, so Azerbaijan tried to wipe out the Armenian Christians of Karabakh from 1988 to 1994, and they lost. And as a result, the Armenian Christians of Karabakh became a de facto independent state. Um, and the conflict was kind of frozen there until 2020. Uh, so it wasn't fully resolved, but at least the Armenian Christians of Karabakh were free. They were in charge of their own destiny. They were ruling themselves. They were at peace. And then in 2020, Azerbaijan attacked again. And this time they, they won the war. It was, it was a ferocious war. 7,000 people were killed in just 44 days. And wow. some 35,000 Christians were driven out of their homes. And the Armenian Christians of Karabakh lost a lot, a lot of their land. Uh, And where we are today is that Azerbaijan has this region surrounded militarily, pretty much. And the only thing defending them is this small group of Russian peacekeepers. Um, And as you say, uh, (laughs) this is not a good time to have Russia be your only protection. Um, Right. That's where they find themselves. I mean, imagine that conundrum you're watching. Whereas the rest of the world right now watching Russia and the assault on Ukraine. And here you have this other scenario where Russia was the force holding back the chaos for this group. Now, you've said this, but just to underscore this, 
you have a Muslim nation essentially attacking this Christian minority group in this area. I mean, this is this would seem to be a Christian persecution issue. I, I don't want to oversimplify, but would that be correct? It is in the sense that this is a Christian people that stronger powers have decided should be destroyed, right? Um, the government of Azerbaijan is secular, so it's not because they want to see Islam be victorious in the region necessarily, but they do see this distinct Christian population and they see them as a threat and they want to wipe them out. Um, so at least for my organization, Christian Solidarity International, it's in our name, right? People are trying to wipe out our Christian brothers and sisters in a different part of the world. We want to be there for them. We want to support them. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. What has your organization, Christian Solidarity International, done? How have you been involved? I know I, I've seen quite a bit of writing and information that you've put out on this, thankfully, so that we could sit here and actually talk about it, and people can't, like me, can be educated on it. But but how have you been involved as an organization in this conflict? So during the first war in the early 90s, this whole region, Nagorno-Karabakh, was under a blockade, and it was very hard to get medicine and food into the region. Uh, so CSI would actually like, rent helicopters and airplanes and fly in food and medicine to this region that was under siege. Um, and we were also doing human rights reporting on the ground. We were the first organization to witness uh, the aftermath of a massacre of about 45 Armenian Christian villagers in a village called Maraga in 1992. Um, since the war started again in 2020, uh, we've been helping displaced people find housing, pay for heating, um, get supplies to start jobs in the places where they've been forced to flee to, usually inside the Republic of Armenia. And we also support a rehabilitation center, which is a state-of-the-art facility that helps people who've been wounded in the war and helps children with disabilities and other people with special needs. And it's right in the heart of Nagorno-Karabakh. It's called the Lady Cox Rehabilitation Center, named after our hero, Baroness Caroline Cox from the UK. Um, but so we provide a lot of the funding for that rehabilitation center, which really is, is a sign of hope for the people of Karabakh, that even though things are so bad, even though they're under siege, even though their electricity is being cut off quite often, there's still a state-of-the-art facility where even the most marginalized people can go and get help. And we hope that's a sign of hope for them, at least. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's incredible the work that you're doing there. Um, just so people understand, if if Russia doesn't continue doing what they've been doing, which is holding back some of the, the chaos that's already been unfolding there, what happens to the people there? What's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is genocide. I mean, we, we've seen every time Azerbaijan has conquered territory that has Armenian civilians living on it, those civilians are either executed or taken hostage and never heard from again. Um, during the last war, there was a video that Azerbaijani soldiers themselves made of themselves cutting off the head of a 69-year-old civilian who had just decided not to flee. He decided he wanted to stay with his house. He wanted to make sure his house was okay. They came and they just killed him. Uh, so it is really not possible for Armenians to live under Azerbaijani rule. So if Azerbaijan conquers this area, um, that's it. That's it for the, the Armenian people in this, in this region. We've even seen in other areas that Azerbaijan has conquered that not just getting rid of the people, they get rid of every trace of Armenian history. So churches that are thousands of years old, cemeteries, carvings, inscriptions are just bulldozed, erased as if they were never there. If people want to help CSI, your organization, 
to help these people? How can they, how can they be involved? How can they assist you? You can always make a donation to our efforts in Karabakh at our website. That's www.csi-usa.org. Uh, but it's also very important to recognize the U.S. has a role to play in this conflict. And we've kind of been on the sidelines for a long time. And we've let Russia take the leading role with, with really bad consequences for, for the Armenians of Karabakh. Um, but the United States gives military aid to Azerbaijan. And the other country that helps Azerbaijan in its war against Karabakh is Turkey, which is a close military ally of the United States. So why is the United States silent on this? Why are they not calling the presidents of Turkey and Azerbaijan and saying, stop this? Why are they not drawing a red line, if you'll forgive the expression, around Nagorno-Karabakh? Um, we should ask this of our leaders. There's, there's actually a law passed by Congress that says that the United States should not give any military aid to Azerbaijan. But there's a provision for a waiver where the president can waive it if he says it's in uh, the U.S.'s national security interests. And every president has waived it every year since 2002. What's up with that? Why are Christians not more angry about this? Well, especially when you have a Christian population under duress and potentially in a worst case scenario under threat of being wiped out. These are the these are the moments. And I would I would bet because here we are talking about it and we know people don't know that the pressure is not there because people are unaware, which is why these conversations are are so important for us to have so that we can be informed and we can then go to our leaders and and either pressure them or urge them to take action, especially when we have leverage like that. I mean, that seems incredibly bizarre for us to be waving that year after year when something like this is going on. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Well, listen, I really appreciate your time on this. Always love having you on. And we will send people over to CSI, Christian Solidarity International. So if they want to donate, they want to help. And of course, praying for all of those people involved. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much, Billy. That was Joel Veldkamp with Christian Solidarity International. For more information, head over to csi-usa.org. All right, Billy, thanks so much for that important information there. I mean, that's a, that's a place that I really hadn't heard much about before. And so it's really interesting to get that background there. And of course, so we can all be praying as Christians because our brothers and sisters in Christ over there are suffering immensely, again, in ways that oftentimes we can't really understand. So thanks for bringing that one. But that leaves us with time, guys, for one last thing today. And I couldn't let this one go. I couldn't resist. Joe Scarborough put out the bait, and I'm going to take it, but he made some comments, guys, about abortion that a lot of people are finding head-scratching. I'm going to read it real quick, and we'll react here. He said, let me say, as a Southern Baptist that grew up reading the Bible, maybe a backsliding Baptist, but I still know the Bible, Jesus never once talked about abortion, never once. It was happening back in ancient times. It was happening during his time. Never once mentioned it, he said, and then he added, for people perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ down to one issue, it's heresy. So, guys, I'll uh, open the floor to you on that one. Well, I guess, you know, the Bible doesn't say a lot of things that we believe. Yeah. It, it doesn't, you know, the Trinity, for instance, is a word that's not mentioned in Scripture, yet we believe it. But beyond that, thou shalt not kill. I mean, this is throughout, this is throughout Scripture, the idea that you don't kill, especially somebody who's innocent. And I don't know how anybody looks at scripture, sees that God has a plan, because here's the deal. If you 
if you do what he's doing and you defend abortion in this way, you have to overtly reject that God has a plan for any human life because you've decided you're the one who's going to end that life, right? So it doesn't matter what the plan is for that life. So to me, he's just rejecting the entirety of scripture. It's not just about one issue. It's about the fact that that issue connects to everything else in scripture. Yeah. Yeah. And clearly Psalm 139, I mean, there's a million verses that talk about babies and humans and our souls and who we are being formed in the womb. So uh, you could clearly deduce there what you, that you shouldn't be destroying what God is knitting in the womb. I mean, that should be fairly obvious. And it's interesting to me, too, that Joe points out, oh, you need to read the red letters. Open your Bible and read the red letters. Well, when Jesus was quoting the Bible, he was quoting the Old Testament. And so the red letters are quoting the Old Testament letters oftentimes. So it's ridiculous for them to try to do this. I, I don't, it's honestly, I pray for Joe because he's standing on very, very shaky ground. Well, I mean, the the person who's committing heresy is accusing everyone else of committing heresy, yeah. which is kind of ironic. But look, I think the thing here that's so frustrating is it's such a intellectually dishonest argument yeah. from the jump, right? Because it's, I, I kind of listened to his comments and it makes me think like as a kid, how would I reason? So if, if my mom catches, catches me hitting my brother in the face and then says, Trey, you can't hit your brother in the face. So then the next time I just kick him in the shins and like, well, you didn't tell me I couldn't kick him in the shins. <laughs> yeah. You said I couldn't hit him in the face. Um, it's like, and then obviously then, yeah. both are wrong. And then the next time you kick him in the gut and so look, right. you, I mean, you, it's like just because it's not explicitly <laughs> it's like, said, right? There, uh, doesn't there are, mean that the principle doesn't clearly apply, right? And the principles, of course, Jesus saying love your love, uh, love one another as you love yourself, right? The golden rule you can apply that to those instances. We've been also given brains so that we can properly right. use the principles and the values God has given us and apply them to any situation. I mean, it's common sense which appears to be lacking today and. Sadly, we have to explain more and more basic, obvious truths and get back to basics because people seem to be flagrantly disregarding them. So, all right, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. As always, head on over to CBN News for more news from a Christian perspective. Lord willing, in that creek don't rise. We'll be back here tomorrow with more. So God bless you. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. We'll see you then.